0: Hey, Eric Goldwine here from LTCCC's Nursing Home 411 podcast. Before we start, we need a favor from our Apple podcast listeners. Yeah, I'm talking about you. Please leave us a rating and a review by opening the podcast app, then heading to the Nursing Home 411 podcast page and scrolling down to the ratings and reviews section. Your support helps us provide free educational materials that can ultimately make a real difference in the lives of nursing home residents. That includes webinars, user-friendly data, fact sheets, and, of course, the Nursing Home 411 podcast. Up next, you'll hear an interview with health economist Ashwin Gandhi, who's going to tell you just about everything you need to know about nursing home staff turnover and how it affects resident care. I recommend heading to the show notes page for links to some of the studies and articles mentioned in the interview. There's a lot of them. Here's our music by Silverman Sound Studios. So if you've been doing any research on nursing home staffing, on COVID and nursing homes, you have probably come across a study by our guest, Ashvin Gandhi, who I'm excited to be talking to today. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well. Thanks, Eric.
0: Yeah. So the focus on today's interview is going to be on staff turnover, which is often overlooked when we look at at staffing levels, when we look at staffing ratings, when we look at overall assessment of nursing homes. Can you start by telling us in layman's terms, what is staff turnover and why should a resident or a resident's loved one or an advocate care about this issue?
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh, Thanks for asking. So I think that's a great question. And I think where you started uh, is a great place to start, which is that usually when we think about staffing, and the way that CMS rates and regulates staffing is really all about, you know, number of bodies, right? It's a count of staff hours per patient day. And that's usually the key metric for quality of care. Now, what turnover is about is that you may want the same set of staff members to provide care to a patient throughout their stay. that you want a consistent team of staff working together uh, both because it may help with immediate patient care, say, for example, if you're a long-term patient uh, who has Alzheimer's or dementia, maybe we think that having the same uh, consistent staff that you work with might be good for effective care, but also in terms of having effective management structures and teams that are used to working together. Uh, and so, for example, we have recent research that that just uh, is coming out in the journal Health Services Research, where we look at turnover that happens right before health inspections. And what we see is that facilities, that, the same facility on years where it has staff that kind of turnover basically changes, not necessarily in the number of hours of care that patients are provided, but bringing on new staff who haven't been with the facility for a long time. If you see a lot of that right before uh, a health inspection, the facility ends up being much more likely, uh, or at least a few percentage points more likely to uh, be cited for an infection control violation. Um, and so these types of, of processes that you might think that you need consistent staffing, working together, knowing all the appropriate rules, knowing all the conditions the patient's for, um, are much easier to do if you have the same set of staff rather than continuous turnover and who's working.
0: Right. and. Your research found that I believe is a 100% staff turnover nationwide, correct? Yeah, so we found
1: mean and median turnover rates for nursing home staff, for RNs, LPNs, CNAs that are all sort of in that kind of near 100% range. Now, I think what you're getting at is that the idea of a 100% turnover is a little bit of a confusing number what I want to first point out is that when we measure turnover, what we're trying to measure is, you know, what percentage of the hours of typical care, those, what percentage of that is turning over. And so you shouldn't think about it when I say that there's 100% turnover throughout the year as every single staff member leaves. Instead, what we typically see is that facilities usually have some staff That actually stay very consistently working at this facility for long periods of time many months and years but then the other part of their staff may consist of of staff members who are only working for a few months and then that position turns over and and other staff take over and so when you think of me saying oh the median turnover rate is a hundred percent what you should really the prototypical example to have in your head is a facility where maybe uh, let's say, for simplicity, 50% of the staff worked the whole year, but then the other 50% of the staff, we saw all those roles basically turn over twice.
0: Now, it would make sense, and I believe this is what the findings say, that the CNAs would have the highest turnover rates, given what I understand about wages and other effects about that position. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, so that's not quite accurate. Uh, we, they, we find that they're all fairly high and there are some differences between them. Uh, we were actually a little bit surprised. This was one of the things that, that stood out to us was that actually we didn't find, we expected to see very high rates for CNAs, although not as high as we actually saw. But we were certainly expecting them to be high for CNAs and higher for CNAs than for RNs and LPNs. And that's not really we didn't get that stark difference between uh cnas and and rns and lpns and i think that we're still trying to understand exactly what's driving that i think your intuition was exactly ours which is that certified nursing assistants tend to have far and away the low i mean they, they definitely have the lowest wages and it's, it's frequently um you know very close to minimum wage is extremely difficult work and it, we expected that correspondingly the turnover would be really high and it was really high but perhaps alarmingly it's also really high for registered nurses and and lpns and i think we've been you know talking to people in the industry and trying to really understand what's going on there i think there are a couple of things that are happening there Um, one is a more technical thing that has to do with sample composition. So there are fewer registered nurses. And so one turnover and one role there mechanically corresponds to a much larger percentage. But I think perhaps the more important thing is that long term care, as you know, is not always, certainly not the highest compensated and definitely not the highest status, so to speak, part of the healthcare industry you know, even the, the RNs uh, and the LPNs as well have very difficult jobs where the compensation isn't necessarily as good as they might get in other uh, other roles, in other parts of the healthcare industry, and the, the perception of sort of status is maybe, maybe not there. And so, unfortunately, that's that's a sort of perennial problem for long-term care, as you know, that uh, that it's not given the same sort of attention and status as, as other parts of the healthcare industry,
0: like working in a hospital. And a- another finding, hopefully I get this one right, because I was off on the previous one. This is why we bring in the expert to, include, to explain <laughs> their own research. Um, if I remember correctly, one of your findings is that higher staff turnover was associated with lower overall ratings. That's correct, right?
1: That is correct. In fact, it's basically associated with lower ratings on all of these different dimensions.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, is it this is a chicken or the egg question. Are the ratings low because of the high staff turnover? Uh, is there any research on the direction that this association might be going? Yeah, so uh,
1: our stu- I'll, I'll full disclaimer, our study does not try and get at the causal relationship between staffing turnover and quality. It is absolutely the case that we do see that turnover rates are much higher for one-star facilities uh, than they are for five-star facilities, right? So you're looking at like 135-ish percent for one-star facilities on uh, at the median versus you know, less than 80 for five-star facilities. And so there's pretty substantial differences uh, between low and high quality, at least as measured by quality ratings facilities. I think the question you want me to answer is the question that I want me to answer too, and I, I want the literature to answer. And that is, is turnover, is high staff turnover really causing lower quality of care? And I don't think we have great answers to that question yet. Uh, we're just starting to scratch the surface there. So I think the first stu- study of ours that tries to look at this is this infection control study, where there you have to basically believe, if you want to believe that turnover is what's causing the greater likelihood of infection control violations, what you have to believe in your head is that there isn't something else that was going on in the background that led to both high turnover and poorly following infection control processes, right? So I think what we have is pretty good suggestive evidence there that there's a relationship, but if you wanna be a really skeptical reader, which, which I will always encourage someone to do when they're looking at academic research, the concern you would have there would be to say, well, what if there was a turnover in management and that manager was really bad and they fired a lot of staff or a lot of staff left because the, the manager is really bad. And that manager also fails to put in place all the necessary protocols and have staff follow the the, uh, infection control protocols appropriately. In which case it's not that one is causing the other, they're both caused by the same thing. So getting at those questions is really tough, but that's a direction that we're taking the research. And I hope that within the next year or two, we'll have really good answers for you or at least better answers for you, really trying to look using these data on trying to take advantage of looking at variation and specifically which nurses are working on which days and trying to understand whether that drives um, things like falls or re-hospitalizations, mortality, um, you know pain
0: management on on MDS assessments, et cetera. This is so so interesting to me because we at LTCCC, uh, we post staffing data uh, based on payroll-based journal data, and we post it in its rawest form, and meaning we'll calculate if a a facility's staffing hours per resident per day. And in general, uh, we assume that a higher staffing ratio is better than a lower staffing ratio. But what I come to realize after reading research like this is how limited that number or that indicator might be. And this is important because on Care Compare, which is the federal system for rating nursing homes, each nursing home is assigned a rating of one being the worst, five being the best. And those are largely determined by the staffing levels, but those staffing levels do not account for staffing turnover. Just as an example, a facility with a five-star high staffing rating or high staffing level of, say, 8.0, which is in theory good, it might not be so good if we dig deeper into that facility and we learn that they've had 12 different uh, RNs cycle through and um, there are 25 CNAs, and there's all this chaos as far as, as turnover. So it, it's interesting to me that the potential for this to give context to the consumer.
1: Absolutely. And so I think that you've sort of hit the nail on the head of thinking about this as another key measure that indicates quality. Now, I think that we certainly shouldn't throw staffing hours per patient day out the door. That's still a really, really valuable measure. Even in that study on infection control violations and turnover that was led by Lacey Loomer at uh, University of Minnesota, uh, Duluth. you know that stu- In that study, we found that staffing levels are also really key predictors of whether facilities have infection control violations. So you should think about this as another piece of information we wanna bring into the fold. When we think about quality of care, when we think about what constitutes good staffing, having adequate hours to provide the care is really important, but we should also potentially start thinking a little bit more about whether that care is coming from staff who have been with the facility for a long time such that they have familiarity with the patients and processes at that facility. And so hopefully what we'll see, and I know, talking with some some states who are interested in trying to get measures like this up about trying to provide that information to consumers about okay well if you're uh looking for a nursing home you want to know okay well what's the staffing level i'm going to get but also is that consistent staffing is that staffing with a really high turnover here or not Mm -hmm. um and so hopefully and i think CMS was supposed to do this already, but think they never just never got around to it or there are data quality issues and challenges to, to doing it in a careful way. Unfortunately, that information has never really been made available to the public.
0: Now on the micro on the micro level, say you're a uh, say you have a parent in a nursing home, a husband or a wife, in a nursing home, how would you go about determining whether this facility is having turnover problems? Are there questions you can ask? Is this information publicly available in a, on a given nursing home? Are there just like signs, like maybe you see six different CNAs in a given month taking care of your loved one? What, what can you look out for to determine whether there is high turnover?
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, the best thing would be if we could simply provide people those numbers in a clear and easy to read form. You know, my guess is that your best bet without that data being clearly available to you is to talk to some of the staff and just ask them, you know, how long have you been at this facility? And given how high the turnover rates are, you should fairly you know, with a, even a relatively small sample of five or six people, you should get a decent sense, at least some sense of whether this is a facility where staff turnover is very high or, or lower.
0: And how do you s- stumble upon this research topic?
1: Yeah, so this is actually the first paper of a much larger portfolio of work we've been trying to do. What we want to really understand now that this payroll-based journal data is being collected by CMS is what does it mean to have good staffing? To go back to that question you asked earlier, can we say that high turnover lowers quality of care? And the answer right now is we think it probably does. That would be my guess without seeing the data and the little bit of research we have done This thus far points to that but can we do a much more detailed analysis? And so we saw this data and initial thought was, let's dig into it, let's try and understand, can we rethink what constitutes good staffing? Can we think about really taking into account individual staff identity as a key component of what constitutes staff quality? Because that's what you're doing when you talk about turnover being bad, you're implicitly saying that like having the same staff member generate a lot of tenure and experience with a particular facility and its patients is good for quality of care. And so this is just the first step, I think, in what will hopefully be a portfolio of work, really trying to establish whether it's the case that having consistent staffing care matters. We think in all other parts of the healthcare industry that that's the case, right? There's a huge literature on how much it matters whether your doctor is really good or bad and whether you have a really consistent Uh, continuous care from that specific doctor and how much worse patient outcomes are when their primary care doctor retires and they have to go to another primary care doctor, right? Unfortunately, the medical literature is a little obsessed with more clinician, uh, physician-based studies and hasn't really given the same careful consideration and individuality, so to speak, to nurses and the care that they provide and it sort of treats nurses like widgets and can we really rethink whether that's the case
0: now uh, i think we've set a record uh, it's been 24 minutes and we have not once mentioned covid and i would be remiss not to <laughs> not not to ask you or not to mention how this pandemic has had major effects on staffing levels. Now it's, it's my understanding your research uh, was focused on data prior to COVID, correct?
1: That's right. So this particular study really focuses on uh, pre-COVID staffing levels.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and we're doing research now really trying to look at the impact of COVID outbreaks on staffing and the sort of devastation that wreaks. unfortunately. Can't talk about it yet because of the rules for clinical journals, Mm -hmm. Um, but I suspect your intuitions are probably right in terms of of all the hardship that COVID is going to to wreak on the staff and the residents at a facility and and the struggles that it is to to really keep facilities consistently staffed through outbreaks.
0: Real quickly, the paper is called High nursing staff turnover in nursing homes offers important quality information. And uh, I recommend uh, following Ashwin on Twitter at uh, A-S-H-D-G-A-N-D-H-I. And he'll, I'm sure, post the new research when that is available on, on staff. Turnover. Absolutely,
1: and in general, if you're ever looking for the public versions of papers that are behind a paywall, I recommend going on Google Scholar. I think now Google Scholar, if you, will give you an option for uh, linking to the uh, the free version of the paper but it has the same intellectual content.
0: And there's another, uh, some other research that I think is very important that you uh, you discussed in a um, webinar in our presentation with justice in aging centers on admissions discrimination. The takeaway finding for me was that nearly one in five residents aren't at their first choice nursing home. Let's, let's, let's talk about what that means, like the key findings there, and why a resident or a family member should care about that.
1: Yeah, so that paper, it's, it's currently entitled Picking Your Patient's Selective Admissions in the Nursing Home Industry. If you go to my website, you can find a link to a free copy of the paper. What that paper tries to really do is we ask the question of whether nursing homes are discriminating in their admissions practices. Are they turning away some patients while admitting other patients uh, at the same time? These practices can definitely be illegal. So for example, disability-based discrimination, turning them away simply because that care is very costly for the facility to provide, Medicaid discrimination, and their my understanding is that there isn't existing case law. You know, so I've talked to some lawyers who would argue that it's certainly illegal, others who would argue that you could probably get away with it if you word it in the right way. You certainly can't put up a sign saying Medicaid need not apply if you are a Medicaid certified facility. But if facilities are quietly turning away Medicaid patients and not telling them why, it, it may become a sort of hard case. So now onto that that specific paper, what it tries to do is it tries to measure how often admissions discrimination occur. The key result of the paper seems to be that almost 20% of patients are not at their first choice facility. And what that means is that in the paper, I basically estimate that almost 20% of patients, patients who are disproportionately on Medicaid or have disabilities that are costly for the facility to try and provide care for are not able to get into their first choice facilities. And what makes the paper so interesting, at least uh, to me and and probably to a lot of the academic community, is not this fact that I think a lot of people in the industry could probably tell you anecdotally, but it's what it does is it tries to set up, it tries to establish robust statistical evidence of discrimination. And it's always hard To show statistical evidence of discrimination because you can always have a skeptic in the room that says, you know, okay, well, you see that Medicaid patients don't seem to go to good facilities and only go to bad facilities. You're saying that's because Medicaid patients are turned away from good facilities. How do you know that it's not just that Medicaid patients don't care about quality? that they're unsophisticated in picking which facilities they want, or they live in poor neighborhoods and bad facilities are located near poor neighborhoods. How do you really disentangle what's discrimination from what's not discrimination? But the basic premise of the paper is that what I try and do is I try and show that discrimination is happening by looking for patterns that are consistent with really sophisticated discrimination. What we should expect with sophisticated discriminating facilities is that when they're really empty, if they happen to have a lot of beds available, then suddenly they're willing to admit lots of Medicaid patients. Suddenly they're willing to admit patients with disabilities. But then when they end up being more full, you see them becoming more and more discriminatory. So it's this Mm -hmm. variation in how discriminatory they are that we think of as being really critical evidence that's not as open to these kind of critical interpretations like, well, what if Medicaid patients are unsophisticated?
0: I'm going to attempt an analogy here, and you're going to let me know if it's A plus material or if it's it's iffy. Let's say that there's a restaurant, almost packed, but Mm -hmm. they have one table left. Now, uh, if they were smart uh, and there were a lot of different customers and there's Three, it's, it's five people in suits and fancy dresses versus uh, maybe uh, someone who's, who, who looks like they don't, they're not gonna have a, a huge meal, they're just in there for a cup of coffee. They are going, a discriminatory restaurant and a smart restaurant is going to let in the people in the suits and the cocktail dresses. Now, That's if it's exactly right. three o'clock in the afternoon and there's no tables, they're not going to discriminate. They're just going to let in everybody who's at the door. Is that, did I get that kind of right?
1: That's exactly right. That is, that you hit the nail on the head. And the key thing to keep in mind is that if I just told you that this restaurant only admits uh, people in suits and fancy dresses all the time, then the discrimination skeptic could say, well, maybe it's because non-suit people don't like that restaurant. And in fact, there is a classic academic literature on nursing homes that often makes these implicit assumptions that patients who are on Medicaid don't care as much about quality. And so what we try and do here is we look for that evidence of these differences to show that, look, not only is there this discrimination happening, but we're going to show you that it's happening from the fact that it's happening in a way that's really sophisticated. So... The example you gave is great. I should have you come to all my
0: talks. (laughs) I I appreciate it. So we're going to close this off with our guest recommendation Mm -hmm. section. We're going to start with something that's long-term care related. Again, this can be a book, an article, a movie, uh, anything. And then we're going to go with our non-long-term care.
1: Yeah. So I think I'm going to recommend that people who are interested in more on that Rather than going to the paper, which is uh, written for a very technical audience, I actually did a a video with, uh, like a video seminar basically with uh, justice and aging. And
0: then your non long-term care recommendation.
1: Yeah, so my recommendation is um, is to watch some football film study. So this is something I'm a very casual Football viewer. I'm, I'm a big Tom Brady fan. I feel like I spent uh, six years in Boston in the cold weather. So I really earned the right to, to be a Tom Brady fan and, and bask in his greatness. And during this last offseason, I've found my way into YouTube videos in which someone really gives a careful breakdown of what they're seeing in football film about what's actually happening in plays for different players. Because When we as casual observers watch, you know, we're seeing the guy holding the ball and the guy he passes it to, but there's so many other people on the field that are all playing their roles to make everything happen.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to attempt to go full circle here. Now, say Tom Brady throws the ball and the other team catches it, or say Tom Brady fumbles the ball and the other team recovers it. What would you call that?
1: Oh, God, a turnover.
0: Yeah. A turnover. So we have, we've we've gone full circle here. Uh, Just a smooth transition from nursing homes to football. Uh, Ashman, thanks so much for uh, putting up with that joke and for your time. Of course, my pleasure.